This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This edition is produced in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. My guest is Sarah Giorgini, a historian and series editor for the papers of John Adams at the Massachusetts Historical Society. She is the author of Household Gods, The Religious Lives of the Adams Family, published by Oxford University Press. Household Gods is a family biography that explores the Christian republicanism of John and Abigail Adams and how it shaped their view of the origins and destiny of the American nation under the guidance of divine providence. The book charts change in religious culture through the generations with profiles of John Quincy and Louisa Catherine Adams, the religious interiority of James Francis Adams, the cosmopolitan outlook of the skeptic Henry Adams, and the religious renewal experienced by Brooks Adams. Each generation had to reevaluate the usefulness of Christian republicanism through the New Republic, antebellum reform, the Civil War, and the emptied-out faith of the Gilded Age. Household Gods not only gives us insight into a famous American family through their education, travels, religious inquiry, and literary endeavors, but also into the changing moods of the nation over the course of more than a century. Here is my conversation with Sarah Giorgini. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Sarah Giorgini. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. First, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Household Gods. So my story of writing Household Gods begins just about a decade ago here in the offices of the Massachusetts Historical Society. I joined the Adams Papers editorial project, and one of my first duties as a beginning editor was something that we all do when we're researching a family history or we're writing a dissertation. My job was to transcribe original manuscript sources. That meant I sat down with John Adams' letter book, and I tried to decipher for his twisty, turny 18th century script and his non-standard spelling. And I got to kind of eavesdrop on his account of his family's history as he relayed it to his old friend, Benjamin Rush. And one of the first letters I transcribed happened to be his account of the family's emigration from Puritan-era England to early mid-17th century Massachusetts. And he said, you know, this race of Adamses, it's now been here for some time. It's settled here. And the thing that has kept them going all this time has been, and here I flipped over the page to see what it was in great excitement, religion. And I thought, aha, John Adams is throwing me a lead, right, from the 19th century. He's telling me that if I follow the family history of religion, I'll be able to understand how this family rooted themselves in American political culture and in the broader world. So I decided to take him up on this. I thought, I really want to write a family history of religion. I wonder how far I can go in either direction. And what I ended up with was the story of how one American family explored and encountered different fates from about the Puritan period to the progressives. Now, when I started reading this, I noticed that the Adams family was a traveling family and a writing family. They wrote a lot. They traveled a lot. They traveled all over the world and, and throughout the, the generations. Was that 
typical of people of their class? Or was this uh, an unusual family in that way? What a great thing to point out right away, this interconnectedness between experience, right, going out into the world and recording it. So the Adams papers alone have about a quarter of a million manuscript pages, uh, diaries, letter books, later on photographs, poetry. I knew I couldn't wade through all of it. But that point you just made about travel, that's actually what kept them recording for the archive, because they had these long periods when they were far away from home and from each other. And to bridge some of that cultural distance, they set down their reflections in print. And if they didn't start out writing for the archive, by the time we got to, say, John and Abigail's generation, so the late 18th and early 19th century Adamses, they were keenly aware of the history they were living through, and they were desperate to record it and their own roles in it. They certainly had as a diplomatic family, we're talking about a family where you have three Harvard-educated men in a row who serve as American ministers to Great Britain. They have an incredible amount of knowledge and education that they fling themselves at the world with, and they're curious to see if the world lines up with what they read about in their college classrooms. So this interconnectedness between having a lot of time on the road, because that's their gig as diplomats, and this really, I think, desperation to record what they're seeing as it happens to each other is very much something that's unique about the Adamses. We're very lucky to have the archive that they left behind, but something that immediately raised a red flag to me as a researcher was this massive archive also has silences too. And I would have to do a lot of work to put their stories in context and to listen to the places where they didn't comment on faith, um, where I thought they might. Because isn't it, I mean, as the generations progress and they have a, such a legacy behind them, they become more self-conscious, I think, of what That's they're absolutely writing. absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So when we get to the mid-19th century, Charles Francis Adams, who is John Adams' grandson, has this idea that he's going to reassert the family's political brand and he starts publishing John and Abigail's letters. So immediately the family archive has a very curated edition out in the public realm. And this is a period where I think, you know, we have to think back to the 19th century. The Adamses are not the most popular people. They're certainly respected, but they're not the most popular presidents. So this attempt to kind of rebrand the family by publishing the archive begins in the Victorian period. It is, however, done by a Victorian editor, right? And someone who's the family guardian of the the image that they want to project. And so we see things that are edited, not every little bit of love affairs and state secrets kind of spill out. There's a lot of history that doesn't get told. And then that becomes kind of the charge we take up in the 20th and 21st century with our publication of the Adams Papers to kind of bring you their words unvarnished and in context. So it's a very interesting archive to navigate. And as you say, the family has always had a great say in the presentation of their ideas over time. So, uh, and of course, at that time, they didn't have television, they have radio, mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff they didn't have. And mm -hmm. writing and writing for publication was the way that you leave a legacy for the public. I think that's absolutely right. Lots of Adamses, beginning with John Adams, his son, John Quincy, his grandson, Charles Francis, they each have kind of the same fantasy that they're going to grow up and become a man of letters and law, someone who could easily put out a political newspaper, churn out some popular poetry, and also run for Congress. So it's very much the 19th century archetype of the Victorian gentleman scholar that these generations aspire to. And we see that reflected in the archive for the men. We've talked about the men, but I would argue, obviously, that the Women in this family have some of the juiciest correspondence um, for us to read. And some of the letters that are the most politically astute come from the pen of, say, Abigail Adams, <laughs> more so at times than that of her husband. 
Okay, let's talk about the title of the book, Mm -hmm. Household Gods. Where did that come from? So when I was writing this story, I was really casting around for a title. I needed some kind of organizing concept to explain to readers and to myself how this family thought about religion. And I spent a lot of time out at the Adams National Historical Park in Quincy, Massachusetts, which is a fabulous site. It's the original home, Peacefield, where John and Abigail lived, where John Quincy was born and grew up. And Charles Francis eventually made it into what's kind of the first presidential library housing his books and John and John Quincy's books. And on the mantle in the stone library is a set of several busts of Greco-Roman orders. Um, And this is just kind of these beautiful bronze busts that John Quincy picked up when he was just about to leave Napoleon's Paris and head off to his turn serving as American minister to Great Britain. And in the family, these busts became known as the household gods, kind of a riff on um, Virgil's Aeneid, someone who can sweep up these Republican totems in the middle of the night and go off and replant a new republic. And this was something that really became, I think, a favorite artifact within the family. So they traveled to the White House mantle when John Quincy became president. They traveled back to Quincy when he moved back and forth between sessions of Congress. And they were still there when John Quincy's grandson, Brooks Adams, used to guide Jazz Age visitors through the garden in the 1920s uh, to show them exactly um, what it was like to live there in that day. So to me, the household gods made me think about the portability of Protestant religion, What was it about faith that the Adamses were able to sweep up and take with them every time they moved? As you say, they're incredibly well-traveled people. And I kind of wondered, what was their intellectual carry-on? Like, what was their intellectual baggage? What was the one thing they always packed first and never left home without? And that gave me some sense um, of how to organize the book, how to think about these people who were always on the road but carried some Christian, lowercase r, Republican principles along with them. Now, when I read it, as I read it, I felt like I was not reading uh, the biography of a family. I felt like mm-hmm. I was reading actually a national biography that the Adams mm-hmm. family really come to represent in your book, it seems to mm-hmm. me, uh, certain uh, ideas that have moved through American uh, mm-hmm. national life. And one of the first first ones that, mm-hmm. of course, that's the first one that you just mentioned uh, is Chris, Christian republicanism. Can you mm-hmm. talk about how John and Abigail saw this foundation, the foundational values? What were the foundational values of what we now you know, label Christian republicanism? Mm-hmm. I'm delighted you saw that because I did kind of think of it as overlapping, evolving ideas of American religious history. And one of the goals that I had in writing Household Gods was to really interrogate all the isms that they lived through, whether it was providentialism or Christian republicanism or agnosticism. I was very curious about how they interpreted those ideas. So with Christian republicanism, When we think of how John and Abigail pictured that idea and put it to work in their lives, we have to think about their education first. So Abigail is largely self-taught. John is Harvard educated. Both of them would have had some sense of the importance of classical republicanism. They would have looked back, of course, to, you know, Athens and Rome and thought about whether or not the new republic which was also at that time another slave-holding republic with an emphasis on achieving democracy, they would have thought where Christianity would fit in as kind of the most modern element that was changing um, how the world thought about democracy in that period in the late 18th century. And so to them, to be a Christian Republican was to be prudent, to be patriotic, and to most definitely be Protestant. So those were kind of the the guiding pillars to them of Christian republicanism, how they would be able to resolve some of the early republic's greatest problems. Um, I'm thinking especially of slavery here. 
they weren't quite sure. They still grappled with that every day. But this idea of Christian republicanism that they had also came out of a very long arc of providentialism, right? The idea that providence intervenes in human events, that there is an omniscient God shaping the future of the country and shaping their family. I think you made a really good point just a minute ago, and I just want to return to it because the idea that the uh, that it's a national story is definitely one that comes out in the Adams's own recording of history. They very much see themselves as a mirror of what's happening to the nation. Whatever woes or troubles or successes or rewards they are going to encounter as a nation, they will see it reflected in their family. Whatever happens in the family circle is just a microcosm of what's going on in the world. So I think that that certainly is something that you see in the Adamses. It wouldn't be unique to them. I'm sure plenty of American families likely felt that way. Um, but this idea of Christian republicanism is very much rooted both in the personal sphere that they inhabited as a family and in the broader public sphere of their political service. Now, their their heritage, of course, is coming from the Puritan Puritan stock. That's the and the their the religious uh, sensibilities are coming from Puritanism. But by this mm-hmm. time, uh, John and Abigail are beginning as it goes throughout their generations to come after them to sort of uh, change it, uh, mm-hmm. modify it. Uh, they don't leave it exactly how they received it. Mm-hmm. And they had to, they had to think about the relationship of Christian Republicanism mm-hmm. with some of its uh, Puritan underpinnings with uh, its relationship to liberalism. So, I think that's, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. So something that John Adams is incredibly canny about is how to deploy his Puritan genealogy to great political effect. So when he's writing his dissertation on the canon and the feudal law, he has this sort of hazy, romanticized idea of where exactly in England his family is from and why exactly they came over, whether it was seeking profit or seeking religious liberty. He's a little hazy on that, but he is incredibly eloquent when it comes to leveraging that memory to push forward history. And by that, I mean, in his dissertation in the canon and the feudal law, he points back to the Puritans as pretty much everyone's ancestors to get the American Revolution up and running. He says, we come essentially from a stock that is Protestant, progressive, well-educated, will not accept tyranny, and knows how to articulate dissent. And of course, this is what you want to sound like if you're a revolutionary, someone who can legitimate, um, you know, overturning a king and establishing a new popular authority. So he's very good at sort of reading the room during the American Revolution and knowing how to leverage those old Puritan ideas to an audience that maybe wouldn't have accepted that before. Now, the Puritans, as we know, are going to get rewritten a number of times, right? They're going to have a couple of different resurrections in the 19th century, too, when it comes to eliding Puritans and pilgrims and their ideals and how Unitarian Brahmins will connect back to them. And we'll see that a little later on with Charles Francis. But what's curious to me is how astute John is, and Abigail often is, too, in using... Puritan language and genealogy to push forward really radical notions of revolution. So how, what is the, how do they try that to liberalism? How, How do they feel about liberalism at this point, this early point in the family? That's a good question because I think that liberal or liberalism, I'm not sure how clearly defined liberalism would be in this to them, for them. Right. yeah, I'm at not, that time. You know, yeah, I'm just kind of wondering if. The, well, I'm a, I'm just wondering how they reconciled, you know, prov, providence mm-hmm. and some of the Calvinist principles okay. with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, duty and obedience and all this kind mm-hmm. of that's also tied in with republicanism with liberalism that mm-hmm. is about uh, individual freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm you know, that, that choices and freedom, which are very big in liberalism. 
Well, you know what's interesting about that? So John and Abigail both grow up in an extremely liberal wing of Cap C congregationalism in Massachusetts. Abigail is the middle daughter of a very prominent Weymouth country pastor. She grew up in a place where literally her home, as well as John Adams' home at times, served as the venue for settling town church disputes. So these were both, you know, people who were raised in a landscape where there was a lot of overlap between politics and religion. And and they very much had their eyes open early on about the application of religious principles to daily life, which I think is important. When it comes to questions of how liberal their thinking was, I would say very. They were fascinated, both of them, by exploring different faiths, by holding different ideas in their heads and reflecting on them in their hearts. And I think that's something that you see, especially in Abigail's experiences when she goes to Europe and she samples Catholicism in Paris and she has interactions with Unitarian and Universalist preachers in London. These were people who were liberal enough to be open to new ideas all the time. Did they have some very ringing endorsements of some ideas and some fairly brash declarations of others? Absolutely. But they were always open to walking through a different religious store and seeing what they could find. Um, So I think that kind of touches on the traditions they were raised in and then the traditions that they followed and handed on to their children. I will say one more thing about that Capsi congregationalism that the Adamses felt was unique to their heritage, the idea that a religious community, a congregation, had the power to meet as a body of people and make decisions about authority, say, how to hire a pastor and what to pay him. This kind of long training equipped them for democratic debate in a lot of ways. And this is kind of one of the reasons that scholars often turn to New England when thinking about where revolutionary ideas start to take root. You know, the idea of congregationalism is very similar to creating a body of liberties, right, by the people. It's very similar to town meetings in New England. This idea that you can get together and have dialogue about difficult things and still reach an equitable conclusion. This kind of practice in the religious realm certainly engendered men and women like John and Abigail to grow up and become revolutionaries. So I think there's a great deal of overlap um, between the two, certainly between religion and politics for them. And they are very comfortable, I'd say liberal, um, with how they explore the boundaries of it. Now, uh, when we get down to uh, the next generation, John Quincy and Louisa mm-hmm. Adams, uh, mm-hmm. we see that John Quincy and his and his wife Louisa are moving, are really are moving. He's moving away from the faith of his of his parents, mm-hmm. and he has quite a few uh, conflicts. Mm-hmm. How to reconcile, you know, a, a Christian republicanism mm-hmm. with uh, classical republicanism with mm-hmm. Protestant Christianity. What to do about the individualism that is making its mark on American religion? Mm-hmm. Uh, he also, you know, he does. He has. He keeps a pew in several different churches, which mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And he, he, ex, you know, he starts exploring, you know, alternatives. Can you mm-hmm. talk about him? I thought he was very. I thought John Quincy was very interesting in the way he tried to pull away from his parents. Uh, mm-hmm. But not completely abandoned it. It wasn't like a wholesale abandonment. I can see that. But it was, mm-hmm. it was trying to modify it in some way. The John Quincy and Louisa Catherine chapter was the first one I wrote. <laughs> ah. So I very much dug in there. And one of the things that occurred to me as I was writing the chapter was, first of all, John Quincy Adams lives this huge life and he leaves this amazing diary, 51 volumes over the course of his life, which is digitized and available on the Massachusetts Historical Society website. I knew I couldn't read it all. So I looked for moments where his education 
helped him open his mind or close it. I looked for moments where his career or his personal life really set him up for a challenge. And then I looked for stories that we don't usually hear about him. Like he kept a pew in multiple churches, which I think is politically a brilliant move <laughs> because yes. he connected with his constituents and was a visible presence among multiple denominations. Um, it's a very savvy move, one that I'm not sure his father fully um, appreciated. So it's interesting to me to see this antebellum political hothouse that he moves through. And at the same time, he's sampling all these different religions. And so I knew I had a big globe-trotting story to tell with him because he goes everywhere. This is a guy who has his first diplomatic gig going to Russia when he's 12. <laughs> so I knew that he was going to be in Russia, in London, in Paris, at The Hague, all over the place. And so I had to really think about what are the moments where his faith is transformed, where something challenges him. And what I realized in writing the John Quincy chapter, which as I said, I wrote first and really became a template for me to understand many of the Adamses that then fill out household gods, is that I had to resist the impulse to write toward religion. So I didn't want to assume that every Adams ended up in a faith. And I didn't want to assume what faith they ended up in. And this injected some suspense to their travels because I never knew, you know, well, are you going to stick it out and remain a Unitarian? Are you going to become agnostic? Like, and this really helped me dig into what it was like to encounter different religious ideas. Something that John Quincy Adams did, I think, with wholehearted abandon and also some real scholarly bona fides. He really, he did the reading before he went to a church and he tried to understand the traditions that he saw. And so he sampled Russian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox faiths when he was abroad in St. Petersburg. One of the most remarkable things I read in his diary was his reflection that St. Petersburg was more religiously tolerant than the hometowns of New England that he knew so well. He felt that this was a place where diversity truly flourished and there were multiple intellectual traditions peacefully in play, something he had never seen in New England, um, which was interesting to me to see. He experienced different faiths as well when he traveled as a young man through Europe um, and he would continue to sample them throughout his life when he was transiting back and forth from Massachusetts to the capital. <clears throat> You're right to say that he departed from the tradition of his parents to a great degree. Um, he really doubles down on investing in a Unitarian pew a couple weeks after his father's death, I believe, in 1826. So it's, it's, almost, it's a notable um, purchase um, that I, I found in following the money. He also marries outside of his denomination. His wife, Louisa Catherine, has a mixed heritage, kind of Anglican in places, some Catholic education. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she um, she's not interested in converting. She somewhat goes along with his practices, but she too likes to explore other faiths. She has some very particular views on the first shakers that she meets. And what I saw in John Quincy and Louisa Catherine was people were people who were emblematic of that vivid exploratory spirit of antebellum religious culture. People who wanted to roam free and kind of vote with their feet when it came to choosing a religion. And that meant sampling everything they could. The Adamses, especially in John Quincy and Louisa Catherine's period, um, were incredibly involved in the attendant literary culture that was flourishing. So if we look at some of the religious periodicals they delved into, if we think about, you know, the pamphlets and the American Bible Society, and we think about the world that they were living in and how rife it was with religious exploration, they became really good tour guides for me to follow. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, uh, that chapter was really interesting. And then we go on to Charles Francis Adam, and we see that he's also traveling a lot. And he's also asking a lot of questions about religion. And, and the nation is, is changing at this time and fundamentally in terms of commerce and industry. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's having an effect on, he sees that it's having an effect on religion. And we see it in his own life. Mm-hmm. And he was the first one who really went after theology. He found mm-hmm. it irksome. <laughs> so let's talk about the religion of this of this period and how he created sort of his own version of religion, which was very a very much interior, private, inner religion. Uh, can you talk about that, please? Thank you. Sure. So Charles Francis was the chapter I was worried about the most. <laughs> I had written my John Quincy chapter and I knew I had Henry Adams coming up and I, I dealt with those two right away. And I thought, okay, I can get from John Quincy to Henry, but what am I going to do with Charles? Because the thing about Charles is, as in life, um, when it comes to history writing, Charles Francis Adams is, you know, never really seen. He's someone who very much plotted through the usual steps of going to Harvard, serving as his father's diplomatic secretary. He had some work in the Massachusetts legislature. He had some publications. He upheld the ideals of the family by curating and publishing the family archive. But I was worried he wasn't going to be terrifically exciting. So Charles was the one who kind of made me a little nervous going into it. And I thought, oh, he's going to be this kind of bland, milquetoast, victim. Victorian, and he's super melancholy in his diary. This is a man who kind of apologizes for writing his own life. He thinks that he's a mediocre writer at best, and that his diary is just one continuous bout of tedious labor after another. And I thought, well, this should be an interesting chapter to write. Um, So what I discovered about Charles um, was that, as you say, he travels quite a bit and he samples new religions, just like everyone else now does in the family um, that we've heard about thus far. But what I learned about him was he really does develop this interior sense of piety. And he's very interested in thinking about representations of piety and how to live a Christian life and how to be something that was, you know, kind of the predominant periodical of the day in this town, which was, you know, the Christian examiner, which is a great way of thinking about him. He is a Christian examiner. He is nominally a Unitarian. He is rooted in the family church in Quincy. He does everything you would expect him to do. He becomes a Sunday school teacher at one point. He sits and trains his kids to recite Bible verses. He writes big checks to local philanthropies. He does everything he's supposed to do. And yet, He is so torn up inside over the fate of his own faith and whether he is good enough to be religious um, and to be a true Christian. And I wasn't quite prepared for the depth of his his agony, um, something that really launched him out into the world and got him searching. And I thought by the time I'd, I'd followed him a couple of places to Catholic Canada to see what nuns kind of looked like there, because he wasn't quite sure. Um, by the time he went to Niagara Falls to see what the experience of being a hermit was like. Um, by the time he went out to Nauvoo to meet Joseph Smith about a month before the Mormon leader was assassinated. These are things that by the time I read them, completely changed my view of Charles Francis. And he became a way more interesting person to me because here was someone who was really digging into the tough questions and thinking through the religious legacy that he was going to pass on. He was far more conflicted than I expected him to be. I thought he was very much the standard bearer of Boston Unitarianism. And it turned out that It was always a question for him of whether or not he would go back to church the next Sunday. And that was interesting to me, the idea that you can write a history of religion and it's a story of suspense, especially if it's an intellectual history like this one, that he's constantly encountering these ideas and processing them and he doesn't always get them right. So I was very interested in capturing him as someone who thought he was a failure 
um, but wasn't necessarily so, who did end up passing on a great deal of these ideas to his children, especially Henry. So Charles Francis, someone who really surprised me in the research and writing. Well, yeah, Charles Adams seems to be the most uh, conflicted, mm-hmm. the one that really struggles the most mm-hmm. with with all with all these religious questions and political questions. Now we get to uh, Henry Adams, and by the time we get to him, he's traveling a lot. He's being exposed to a lot of Eastern religion, and he basically rejects Protestantism and religious all religious uh, institutions. And he's he's looking for sort of, but then what he's like encountering the problem of now what do we do to what do I replace it with? Uh, and so he's got he's trying to develop a, what you say is a looking for a usable nirvana mm-hmm. and a, a, a non theistic morality that, that that would be as effective and powerful as what he had inherited. Mm-hmm. And I think that. He's also very interesting. Can you talk about the nature of his rejection of uh, Christian Protestantism? So Henry Adams, as a young man, turns away from religion. He's interested in this construction of the self that involves, as you say, a non-theistic morality, but also one that launches him, like all the Adamses, out into the world and kind of nurtures this sense of cosmopolitanism that they first pick up at home and then deepen through their travels. And so he's never really been, all the time that he's at Harvard, all the time that he's a young man, all the time that he's on a grand tour through Europe following his Harvard graduation, he's never a really serious proponent of attending church. I think one of my favorite quotes from him was that he goes to church every Sunday, but just to hold the door for the pretty young ladies. So this is Henry at his kind of most charming. Um, Church is kind of a pickup joint, less as a place um, for solitude and prayer. And so what does capture him at the same time about religion, again, as a young man, is the idea of collecting religious art. So there's this great fascination that I immediately had with Henry. Who is this guy who rejects religious ideas, but becomes a collector, an avid collector and critic of all things touched by faith? And so he starts sweeping up religious paintings and sculpture and artwork as a young man and moving it into his home. And so he's surrounded by all these signs of faith, this material culture of faith. His scholarship, as he goes into his 20s and 30s and 40s, is focused on medieval Christianity. He's fascinated by the ideal of the Virgin at Chartres. He's enticed by the idea of painting this picture of feminine divinity and wisdom. I thought, again, who is this guy? And how much is he like other people, right? So this is really one of the the big questions that I had working on this project. And it happened with the Henry chapter, I think, more than anything, which is, is he unique? Is he representative? What can he tell us about how other Americans are acting in this period, this late 19th century going into the 20th century? Well, so we know a couple things. We know that in the 1870s and 1880s, Pew membership kind of drops off. We know that Americans become a little bit more attractive to the idea of the trappings of religious practice, um, of building cathedrals and churches and admiring the art more so than the theology, that churches are sometimes veering more towards social clubs than they are toward places to dispense religious ideals. And so Henry is very much on trend with his generation in some ways. He's someone who's interested in the outward appearance of religion, not so much with actually believing and practicing it. And so he goes out into the world. He explores other religions. He's quite taken, as many other American Victorians are, with ideas of Buddhism and Hinduism. Whether or not he fully comprehends what he's looking at and what he's hearing is not always clear. And again, this is something I wanted to think about very carefully in writing about the Adamses. These are encounters with religion. No matter how much reading they do, they may not fully believe and they may not fully understand what they see. And that's often the case with Henry. But Henry understands, as you say, enough to reject, right? So he becomes first kind of fashionably agnostic and then gradually slides more toward the atheist end of the spectrum. And a lot of that happens 
probably about after 1884, after his wife Clover commits suicide. He sort of begins this mad globetrotting spree that he stays on for the rest of his life. And he goes everywhere. He goes to Japan. He goes to Cuba. He goes out west. He goes to the South Seas. He's fascinated by the different ideas of faith that he sees, and he captures quite a bit of them on the page and with his camera. And when he comes back, he has this idea, and I think of him often as someone who kind of practices church history. Uh, So he's interesting to me as a historian of religion. He has this idea that what will replace religion will be science, right? So that historians should sort of adhere to what he calls the hard pan of science when cooking up their ideas. And whether or not he fully understands the scientific principles that he's spouting isn't very clear either. But he really doubles down on this and tries to put this forward as what will make his legacy as a historian. Um, So he has some interesting ideas about the interconnectedness of religion and science. If you want to understand Henry Adams in any meaningful way, I would, and I think it's important that people look at the education, I'd encourage them to actually turn away from his autobiography to look instead at Mont Saint-Michel, which is the counterpart um, to that book. But really to understand Henry, you've got to look at his fiction. So looking at his novels, at something like Democracy or Esther, that's where the real Henry will come into view. And a lot of really meaty stuff about how Americans are exploring religion and science in that fiend sec period crop up throughout those novels. Well, yeah, I'm really interested. I was really interested in how he found a connection or he saw a connection between women and the study of religion. Mm -hmm. He absolutely did. I think that's right. So he has this idea of the female divine, um, of the ideal of the virgin, women who can rule by emotion but still have holy principles. And this is fascinating, right? Because this is a period, and you see this again in his novels, this is a period when strong women characters are not necessarily predominant in most novels. And Henry writes strong women characters. They remind me a bit, some of the theology back and forths that his characters have remind me a lot of those fireside debates that Harriet Beecher Stowe's women characters have too in something like Old Town Folks. You know, so he is very comfortable in real life and in fiction seating authority, granting women the role of authority and saying, that virgin at Chartres, that is the source really of non-theistic morality. His women characters are always the voices of morality and examination, which I find absolutely fascinating. Um, he's, he's, he's a wonderful person to read if you're interested in the interplay of gender history and religious history in that Victorian period. Now, when we get to... Uh after Henry Adams, up to Henry Adams, it, it seemed to me like the book, you're right, your history here was a story of declension. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my, it's devolving, devolving. You know, they started off with a really strong religious faith and every generation gets diluted and diluted until you have Henry. And then the surprise, <laughs> then, you have, then you have Brooks Adams and all of a sudden Brooks Adams is sort of begins to have a, basically a, a religious experience of some sort that makes it kind of recover some of that. It's of course, it's not going to be like his great grandparents, but it's going to be, mm-hmm. it's a significant turning. It really keeps the story from becoming a story of mm-hmm. declension. So can you talk about Brooks Adams, how he fits in the narrative and sure. what, what in, in the legacy of his family? Sure. I love this question because Brooks was my big plot twist. (laughs) What definitely was. Yeah. So originally the book ended with Henry and the story ended with Henry. And I thought, oh, I've written another history of declension. (laughs) I don't want to write that. And so I thought, let me just look at Brooks because I was really curious about his reworking of New England history and the emancipation of Massachusetts, which is a strange book and deserves all of the (laughs) the reviews it's gotten over time. Um, And so I thought, oh, let me look at Brooks. I just have to understand this person 
who was also similarly committed to presenting a certain public version of the family, who was involved in the papers coming here to the Historical Society, who is the person who signed over that Adams National Historical Park to the Park Service. So I thought, I've got to understand someone who would have such a firm grasp on the family legacy, and I've got to see what happened with them. And so I went out to the... First Parish Church in Quincy, which had been the family church for three centuries. Um, and I went out, if, you've, if you're from New England or you've heard of it, we had a particularly bad winter in 2015. And I went skittering out in snow and ice to look at the church records. And they very kindly came and hauled them out for me. And I found the records where Brooks was involved in the church and the money he gave and his interaction with the church. And I thought, well, this is something interesting. I thought I had a story of declension. And here's Henry's little brother who really decides the family is going to root in this tradition after all. How does he get there? So then I tracked back through Brooks. Now, I remember saying, I think at the top of our chat, that the family wrote for the archive to a great degree and curated their version of events. And that's never more true than with the letters between Henry and Brooks, because both of them certainly were involved in destroying some correspondence so that we don't wholly have everything between them or everything that they wrote to others. And so Brooks was a challenge for me in terms of pure archival sourcing. I had to try and get into his historical consciousness through his scholarly work. And so that was a bit of a challenge to kind of understand. What I did know was that as a young man, he did have a religious experience in touring the Catholic churches of Europe. And he confessed all to his brother, Henry. And Henry, who, as you know, had somewhat rejected this sense of faith, pretty much mocked him. But Brooks really stuck it out. And he said, you know, this is something I have never been more touched by. He hears the choir boy singing and the light streaming through the stained glass. And he's he's moved to cry, I think, in, in the church, which is sort of a remarkable thing to think about. And he continues his religious travels. He spends a lot of vacation time in India. Um, he travels through other parts of North America, and he always kind of comments from time to time on what he's seeing. He locks it into his theory about the rise and fall of civilizations like a computer. He runs the same program every time when he writes a book. But he does have a very rooted sense of the family's relationship to that church in Quincy. He still dabbles in Catholicism. Again, he's kind of on trend with a lot of Protestants in early 20th century America who are looking at the Roman Catholic tradition and thinking about whether or not they, they want to, as Brooks say, make the leap. Um, and so this is, it was really interesting to me, kind of the early 20th century Boston that he moved through and how he encountered those ideas. I didn't expect Brooks to end up where he did. Um, and I thought, you know, that's really the great goal was to write a history of religion where I didn't know where any of these people would end up. <laughs> so it was, it was a lot of fun to write about Brooks and to try to get to know him. He has an incredibly acerbic acid tone. So he's a, a very hard person to read on the page. But if you put him up next to his brother, Henry, Brooks was actually the more famous one in his day because Henry published a great deal anonymously or privately. So really, Brooks would have been the name most people knew. Um, and I thought it was fascinating that he engaged with his own past um, through religion. Now he he made some he came up with some conclusions, and one was the power of of religious enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. So that gave him a sort of a theory of history, mm -hmm. what he thought moved history, and then he he reconceptualized the idea of godly republicanism. So can you kind of unpack a little bit of what his theory of history was regarding the power of religion? Sure. So Brooks has this idea and he kind of gets it a little bit while looking back at the Salem witchcraft trials and at the treatment of dissenters in early America, particularly, I'd say, dissenters who were women, um, who he really hones in on in his treatment in the emancipation of Massachusetts. And what Brooks is thinking about is the rise of a priestly caste that misuses authority, right? So the idea that the Christian hierarchy will amass 
and really lord over the people any kind of power that they have. The idea that the priestly caste will be abusive is something that was important for Brooks to establish. And that's really the meat of his book is establishing that. And then once the caste rises in power and kind of overextends itself, people will naturally revolt because they will see that this is a wrong. So there is a great burden on the laity to overturn religious power when it becomes abusive. And this, to Brooks's mind, is how democracy works. And he makes a very fast leap from Salem witchcraft to the American Revolution. It's kind of patched together um, to, to give him some, some truth. But this is also, you're right, how he's rethinking that Christian republicanism in the early 20th century. He's recounting these events and reshaping them. And the idea that abusive authority must be overturned and the idea that it can be rooted in a religious tradition and that such an act ruins the people, the tradition and the priests is something that would of course be of interest to his early 20th century audience. Well, I mean, in, in a lot of religious thought, particularly Christianity, you know, you've got the idea that above all authority, there's God and God is the Mm -hmm. ultimate authority. So Mm -hmm. that makes every other authority relative. So if it abuses Mm -hmm. its power, you could always evoke God as the ultimate authority. Yeah, it's kind of like a neo-providentialism to some degree, right? Right. So tell me, I have one final question about this family portrait, which I think is was really fascinating, and, and it was a lot in there to unpack. Uh, how do you, how do we take? What is a takeaway of, for, from this book about the history of of, of the nation? Oh, what a great question! I think the big takeaway here. Well, I'll give you two, right? I can give two. Um, So the first thing I'd say is explore your family history, right? So if I learned anything from this book, it's that something as accessible as family history can tell us quite a bit about the intellectual history of a nation. When we look at American religion, we often think about dynamic preachers or philanthropic societies or really famous moments. So when I went into this project, I thought, aha, I have the Adamses commenting on all of American religion. They are for sure going to talk about the Great Awakening. They are for sure going to talk about this part of the Civil War. And then they didn't. So the hinges kind of fell off. I had to think of new turning points in American religion. So I'd say if you explore your family history, you might find a way to rewrite the textbook of American religion um, to show where the turning points are. And then I think the second thing that we want to think about as a, a big takeaway here is as intellectual historians is to think about families as complex platforms for intellectual exchange and debate. And I think that's really important for the field. I think that we need to think about churches, of course, and other religious institutions, but we need to think about the dissemination of ideas within family circles. So I think those are kind of the the two big things that occur to me just as, as big takeaways that I would encourage folks to follow up on. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Lillian. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This edition has been produced in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 